psychology and, and uh, physics and chemistry and, and so on all study being under certain aspects, right? Or astrophysics. But metaphysics studies, Aristotle famously said, being qua being. It studies being as being. What is it that makes existence what it is? What are the characteristic marks of a being in the measure that it exists? Now, that's not a scientific question. That's a question of a different, and I would say a higher order. Not denigrating the sciences in any way, but they don't reach that level of abstraction that permits them to raise questions about the nature of being qua being. So the question, hey, why is there being at all? See, that's, that's the question of why is there something rather than nothing? That is not a question that physics can adjudicate. That's a metaphysical question. Welcome back to the Word on Fire show. I'm Brandon Vaught, the host and the content director. Joining us this week from Santa Barbara is Bishop Robert Barron. Bishop Barron, good to see you. Hey Brandon, always good to see you. Let's talk books. We haven't talked books in a while oh, and okay. we always like asking each other what we've been reading. So oh, what's, yeah. on, what's on your bedside table? What are you reading these days? Well, I've been reading a lot for the Creed book. I think you mentioned last time that during this weird period, I've had more time to research and write this book on the Creed. So gosh, I've been reading Wolfhard Pannenberg's book on the Creed, Luke Timothy Johnson on the Creed, Karl Barth's uh, Dogmatics and Outline, which is on the Creed. Um, I've been reading um, Louis Bouillet's great book on the church. I'm on that section right now. I've been reading uh, uh, Congar's True and False Reform in the Church. I also just finished Matt Levering's latest, I think it's his latest book. He writes so many books, but it's on the achievement of... <laughs> he probably, of he's probably finished another one by yeah, the time since, we're done with yeah, this episode. I wouldn't be at all surprised. <laughs> I think it's what called The Achievement of Baltazar or something. You, you had it there, huh? Anyway, I just finished... Yeah, it's called uh, The Achievement of Hans Urs von Baltazar. Yeah, I just finished that. Um, I also, I'm, I'm not through with it yet, it's giant, but um, Cyril O'Regan's big book on Balthazar, which is looking at Balthazar in relation to um, Hegel. It's about 900 pages. So I'm about a third of the way through that, maybe. So that's what I've been, and then for fun, I've been reading um, this Churchill, no, I finished Churchill, I'm reading the, the Roosevelt biography by, um, is it Robert Dalek, I think his name is? Um, good, it's like a one volume, maybe 600 pages on Roosevelt. And then I'm reading... Um, a Napoleon biography because the Churchill one was written by this guy um, Andrew Roberts and he also wrote the uh, book on Napoleon and Napoleon someone that I, frankly I just didn't know that much about you know so I was I'm about a third of the way through that so that's what I'm reading if people write to us all the time asking for Bishop Barron book recommendations and so a few years oh, back we okay. finally put together this list I think it's got maybe a hundred books on it all categorized by topic so it's a free download you can find it at wordonfire.org slash books books with an s wordonfire.org slash books so if you're looking for something to read uh, check out that list I think you'll find a, got a lot of good options and let me say younger people okay, read Bishop. now when you no, can when your eyes are okay my eyes are just getting so bad you know and it's just harder and harder to read and just to find the, it's almost like it's a physical act, you know? Uh, so read when you're young. <laughs> well, let's talk about a new article that is trending a lot. It's, it's in the New York Times, a big feature piece. If you go to view the online version, they have it all fancily designed with special graphics and stuff. So it's a major article. And the title struck my attention because it, it said, 
why the Big Bang produced something rather than nothing? And this is a question I know you and I have discussed. It's a perennial question of philosophy. Some have said it's, it's the most important metaphysical question. Why is there something rather than nothing? And so when I came across this article in the New York Times, which purported to answer it, why the Big Bang produced something rather than nothing, I, I lit up and I wanted to, to see what it said. Unfortunately, though, I was, a, I was a bit disappointed. I think throughout the whole piece, you find the lingering scientism that yeah. you and I have often decried. And so I wanted to talk through the article a little bit. We're not going to fisk it line by line. I want to spend more time on the general philosophical question of why something rather than nothing. Uh, so let's maybe start there. This isn't a new question, right? People have been asking this question for centuries. Yeah, and you might say it's you know, the oldest and most important metaphysical question. Uh, Leibniz poses it that way, and then Heidegger famously in the 20th century. Why is there something rather not nothing? And of course, Heidegger is reliant upon a, a lot of the pre-Socratic philosophers, and so it's an ancient perennial uh, question. The point I'd like to make, Brandon, is it's a properly philosophical question. It's not a scientific question, not a question that can be adjudicated by physics or chemistry or astronomy because they're always looking at events and objects and measurable uh, states of affairs within a sort of finite contingent uh, system. And that's fine. That's what the scientists are built to do. That's what their method gives them access to. But when you ask the question we just asked, that's not a deeper level scientific question. It's a different type of question that takes you out of the epistemological framework of the sciences and introduce you to a higher epistemological framework. One of the problems we face, and you named it correctly as scientism, one of its dimensions is a tendency to see philosophy as primitive science. So when people like, whether it's Aristotle or, or Heidegger or, or you know, Whitehead, well, you know, God bless them. They, you know, they, they wish they could do real science. What they're doing is some kind of primitive, uh, underdeveloped science. No, what they're doing is something qualitatively different than what the sciences do. The collapsing of all the epistemic orders into the scientific is one of the marks, negative marks, of our time. You see that misunderstanding about the purview of science in the very first sentence of this article. Here's how it begins. Scientists on Wednesday announced that they were perhaps one step closer to understanding why the universe contains something rather than nothing. <laughs> what are your thoughts on that opening line? It's silly. I mean, it's the, scientists can't pronounce on that question because it's outside the range of the, what their method allows. And so it's a category mistake. It's a kind of hubris, and, and it happens to us because we're prideful, you know, and we reach the limits of what our, our proper methods can give us access to, but then we step over that. And that's a good example of it. But see, for a lot of people today, and, and I go back to my old mentor, Cardinal George, before you even get to religion, don't bracket religion for a second, it's the collapse of philosophy that's led to a lot of confusion. Because philosophy is a rational, but yet non-scientific discipline. In other words, it's a path, and, and Heidegger used that word all the time, a path, that's rational, it's reasonable, that it's open to any a reasonable person of goodwill, but it's not a scientific path. It's not following the scientific method. But when that collapses into nihilism or, you know, well, philosophy is just, you know, bad science, then all these confusions arise. And then science, we're putting a weight on science that it can't bear. That's the problem. 
think one reason why it, a line like this doesn't strike a lot of people as problematic is because we have such a high regard for scientists. We think yeah. scientist is synonymous with smart person. And so right. if scientists weigh in on something, they must be right. But yeah. I think a useful thought experiment would be to like swap it out with somebody from another discipline to say like, you know, artists have come one step closer to understanding why there's something rather than nothing. Yeah. Or like NBA all-stars have announced <laughs> that they're one step closer to understanding the meaning of the universe. And we would automatically think, well, as great as, as basketball players as they are, why would we think they have any expertise on the question of being or the question of the origin of the universe? But when it comes to science, we think scientists must be experts in every realm of knowledge. Right, and stay with that for a second because you put your finger on, on the key word. Um, Go back to Aristotle, ancient times, and what he called physics, and it's, it's roughly the same to this day, what he called physics, the study of, of matter and motion. Right? So we look around, we see material things, and they, they change and develop, and they're in motion. And so we can analyze that empirically. Good. That's called physics, if you want, in ancient times. Call it today also chemistry or you know, astrophysics or whatever. But that's analyzing one dimension of being. Now, beyond that, Aristotle says, and here he's following Plato, you've got the uh, uh, level of mathematics. So mathematics is not looking so much at matter and motion, it's looking at these pure abstractions that we call numbers and mathematical objects. Think of people that deal, and you did as an engineer, I know, a lot with these pure abstractions. Well, those are metaphysically very interesting to think about, aren't they? Because we're not talking about the bridge you'll eventually build using those abstractions. That's fine, and, and physics can analyze all that. But when you're doing a pure mathematical calculation, or you're using pure mathematical objects, you move to a different level, both metaphysical and epistemic. Now, take the next step. Beyond that, Aristotle says, is the, in his Greek, the metatophysica, the, what's beyond the physics, right? The metaphysical, we would say. What's the purpose of metaphysics? To study not matter in motion, not being under this or that aspect. So let's think you know, psychology and, and uh, physics and chemistry and, and so on, all study being under certain aspects, right? Or astrophysics. But metaphysics studies, Aristotle famously said, being qua being. It studies being as being. What is it that makes existence what it is? What are the characteristic marks of a being in the measure that it exists? Now, that's not a scientific question. That's a question of a different, and I would say a higher order. Not denigrating the sciences in any way, but they don't reach that level of abstraction that permits them to raise questions about the nature of being qua being. So the question, hey, why is there being at all. See, that's, that's the question of why is there something rather than nothing. That is not a question that physics can adjudicate. That's a metaphysical question. Now, if you want, another episode we can do now, the step from metaphysics to religion. That's another one. But for, even for the bracket religion for the moment, I'm with Cardinal George, bracket that. Let's just talk philosophy in regard to the sciences. And the collapse of philosophy has caused a lot of mischief. 
Well, moving a little further down this New York Times article, the article focuses on the existence of these subatomic particles called neutrinos. And mm -hmm. the author describes them as, quote, the flimsiest, quirkiest, and most elusive elements of nature. They stream from the Big Bang, the sun, exploding stars, and other cosmic catastrophes, flooding the universe and slipping through walls in our bodies by the billions every second, like moonlight through a screen door. So in other words, these are very, 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 very small particles whose weight we can't even determine. They're the most tiny quantity of reality that's ever been measured. Some scientists think that these neutrinos explain why they're something rather than nothing. When I read that, I, I couldn't help but think how, you know, say 10 years back, 20 years back, the smallest particles we were aware of or could postulate were quarks. And if you yeah. move back hundreds of, uh, hundreds of years before that, you know, it might have just been the atom. We couldn't even get to the subatomic level. We're always like going down, down, down and discovering new particles. And every time we, we bump down a level, it inevitably raises the question, well, what caused that? Why neutrinos right. rather than nothing? Like a, a material subatomic particle can't in and of itself be the explanation for all being. Don't you agree? Yeah, there's so much there, Brandon. And you know, you're right, first of all, in saying the quest for the, see the atomic from the Greek meaning it can't be divided. So philosophers from time immemorial have been looking for the atomic. What, what is, and you know, think of like, like Hippus and Democritus and those people who said, indeed, there are these atoms, these indivisible things that are always kind of falling and then they suddenly bump into each other and form. And you know, in a way, they were as right as scientists today. They're, they were speculating about the basic sort of building blocks of physical reality. Great, great, fine, off you go. Off you go, from Lycippus to the author of this article, fine, look for the, the most elemental particles you can find. But they don't begin to answer the question of why is there something rather than nothing. I'll give you one little hint. Even the way he was describing neutrinos, right, that are streaming and passing through and moving and this and that. Well, the minute you say that, I'll apply now a philosophical frame of reference. You're talking about a contingent form of, of existence, right? If something's in motion, something is changing, something's unfolding, coming from, going to, all that language, implies that conditions within that reality are being fulfilled, that they don't have within themselves the reason for their own being. Therefore, they're caused. It, it, the minute you say it's at this speed, or it's going in that direction, it's of this intensity, it's at that temperature, what are you implying? Well, it could be at some other temperature, at some other speed, some other location. Therefore, what? And this is not a scientific, this is a philosophical uh, point of, of, uh, of insight. Therefore, they must be caused to explain why it's in this mode and not that mode. Right? So here, you and I are here under these very uh, uh, unique conditions. I'm in a studio, you're where you are, where we have cameras and so on. Well, heck, you and I could be anywhere else. I could be back in my house, I could be in LA, I could be dead, I could be on the moon. So how come I'm here? Well, now, okay, well, let me explain why. Because I got in my car and because we had this appointment to do this thing today, because the temperature is okay in this room, I'm not gonna either burn up or freeze to death. You see what I'm doing here is I'm saying, there's all kinds of causes to explain why you and I are in this particular mode of existence. So, neutrinos. Streaming, coming, flowing, this. Well, why? Why are they that condition rather than some other condition? I gotta look for causes, right? All right, so I find some material cause. Well, is that contingent or non-contingent? 
Oh, those are contingent too, whatever cause we happen to find. Like the Big Bang, for example. Oh, it all came from the Big Bang. Well, the Big Bang, by definition, is a contingent state of affairs. So there's this, there's this hyper-concentration of, of you know, matter and energy, and that, which then, boom, explodes. Well, how come it did that and not something else? How come that was there in that enormous concentration, not some other form? The, the, the Big Bang, philosophically, doesn't explain anything, really. It's just another uh, postponement of the question, right? Why is there something rather than nothing? Um, so I, what I would love is if the philosophers and the scientists could respect each other's intellectual integrity and stop overstepping each other's bounds. I mean, that's, that's part of the problem anyway. To me, it does harm to the great discoveries of science when you try to blur the boundaries between science and philosophy because it creates all this infighting between the philosophers and the scientists. Instead of respecting and celebrating the great discoveries of science, which this one appears to be, what it says in the article is that at the beginning of the universe, there was what they call a clean balance sheet, an equal amount of matter and antimatter but somehow, relatively quickly, the matter outweighed the antimatter, and that's how we got this excess of yeah, how stars come? and black holes how and come? oceans and trees. Yeah, so right. and, and, they, and they, antimatter... And they, they never really answered that question. No, they, and antimatter isn't nothing. Antimatter is a type of matter. And, and so these two forms of matter... Now, you know, look, I, I, I'll bow to the scientists. I, I, don't, I can't articulate all these things exactly. I'm not trained in the sciences. But, but we're talking here about material states of affairs, which means contingent states of affairs. Uh, so oh, all of a sudden this got unbalanced. Well, how come? Explain that to me. That's a contingent state of affairs. Uh, oh, it's the fluctuating vacuum. Well, why is it fluctuating? And wh why is it fluctuating at this rate and not some other rate? You know, that whenever we try to find you know, the foundational reality as a material thing, it's just not going to cut it. And you know who knew that? Aristotle. Go right back to Aristotle what he would have called materia prima, right? Prime matter. I mean, I think, you know, whatever is, uh, what do they say, whatever is, is old is new again. Uh, I think that's what a lot of the scientists are, are, are talking about, is some kind of primordial, primal energy or state of affairs. Well, okay, but what's prime matter characterized by for Aristotle? Potentia, right? potential being. It, it doesn't exist unless it's actualized in some form. It can be this, it can be that. Materia prima can take a million different forms and therefore begs the question, well, why? Why this form and not that form? Therefore, you look for a cause. That's why you need an actualizing principle to realize the potential. Now, see what's going on here, Brandon. I'm using philosophical language to analyze material states of affairs but at a higher level of abstraction. So I'm not competing with the physicist. I, I'm asking different types of questions than he or she might ask. Your reference to Aristotle reminds me of our good friend, Dr. Edward Fazer, the philosopher, and he wrote a book recently titled Aristotle's Revenge. Yeah. And it yeah. traced the same path you described, which is modern physics seems to be vindicating the need for an Aristotelian metaphysics. Otherwise, it can't answer these basic fundamental questions. Yeah, oh no, quite right. Uh, it's, the, it's the different levels of epistemic analysis. And when you, when you conflate those, trouble follows. Let's pull back from the nitty gritty of neutrinos and matter and antimatter and, and zoom out to the more general question of why something rather than nothing. 
there's a lot of people, and I'm thinking here of um, what was the great debate between F.C. Copleston and was it Bertrand, Bertrand Russell, Russell that they yeah. had that big debate? And Copleston's trying to lay out a lot of the things you've just laid out here in the podcast about why a contingent universe needs an explanation, why it can't just exist on its own. And Russell just resolutely denied that this question had even had meaning, that <laughs> the universe just is like the whole question yeah. of why something rather than nothing is a meaningless dumb question we shouldn't even ask that question what do you say to skeptics who who suggest that that this isn't even a question worth asking because it's meaningless you can't really mean it and and russell couldn't really mean it and that's what copleston did if you watch that debate which is supremely frustrating i remember years ago when i first i think i read it it's also audio isn't it you can get it on like the radio version and these two extremely plummy english gentlemen you know talking to each other but Copleston lays out, it was Leibniz's form of the argument from contingency in a way that was very simple, very clear. And Russell would not engage him. And he kept saying, it's this kind of logical positivist nonsense that, you know, well, it, what you're saying is meaningless. And, and Copleston kept saying, look, I, I understand where you're coming from, but I don't think it's possible that you don't understand what I'm saying. When I use a word like, you know, necessity versus contingency. I know, like, you're ideology is telling you this is meaningless, but I don't believe you when you say you don't understand what I'm saying. So a contingent universe, a contingent state of affairs, I mean, in a way, Brandon, bracket the universe, because that can often get us into murky waters with people. Start with this, you and I, right, speaking to each other across the country by, by way of cameras and lights and technology. This is a contingent state of affairs. I don't know how, how you'd possibly deny that. Okay, therefore, there must be some nexus of causes that explains it. Mm -hmm. Are those contingent or, or self-explanatory? Well, it's obvious they're contingent too. On you go. Uh, you can't simply keep going along that same epistemological and metaphysical trajectory. Otherwise, you do not fulfill the principle. You don't satisfy the principle of sufficient explanation, right? You just keep postponing explanation indefinitely. That's the basic form that these contingency arguments takes. I, I, I've been reading people for years that, that claim, oh, we've debunked this, or oh, we found a way around it, and I've never found any of them convincing. And that's, go back to Immanuel Kant, or I, I've never found any of these approaches uh, convincing. All right, let's close with this question. Again, we're discussing the major metaphysical question, why is there something rather than nothing? This question has been answered by philosophers and theologians and now scientists up and down the centuries, but what's unique about the Christian answer to why is there something rather than nothing? How would a Christian today answer it differently than, say, Aristotle, a pre-Christian, would have answered it? Well, right, we can use Aristotelian forms of reason to articulate some truth about God, and that's exactly what Thomas Aquinas does. So when Thomas says, well, philosophers in different ways have proven God's existence. Let me share a couple of them with you. And then he gives us the famous five arguments. Thomas doesn't think for one second that somehow now he's exhausted the meaning of the word God. Now he's told us everything we need to know about God. Rather, as he himself says, I have taken you by the hand like a little child, and I've shown you something that I hope opens your mind to think more deeply and more accurately about the source of reality. But a Christian is going to say, and, and we can follow this, this stream through Aquinas, 
This reality, which grounds all of finite contingent existence, must be a reality which is pure energy and pure actuality. That in turn implies a being who has mind, will, freedom, personality. That means a being that knows himself utterly and loves himself utterly. And loving himself utterly must love everything that participates in his manner of being, which is to say all those creatures that flow from his creativity. What you've come to by a few logical steps there from the non-contingent source of contingency, you've come to a being that has loved the world into existence, that loves everything that he has made. Now we might be ready to move into the, into the great mystical jungle of the Bible, which is now going to reveal to us how this God has interacted with the human race and how he's called us into intimacy with him. Now, what I've done there, Brandon, is, is beginning, let's say, with a, someone who's an atheist. Well, you're not going to just open up the Bible and say, hey, hey, look at this. It'll answer all your questions. You might do what Aquinas did, and I just imitated it there. Is, uh, let, me, let me take you by the hand and just and let me show you some moves. And I'm, I'm going to draw you eventually to the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to draw you to his death and resurrection. I'm going to draw you to the sending of the Holy Spirit. I want to draw you to sharing in the inner life of the Trinity. But it might begin with something as simple as, hey, do you ever think, how come this state of affairs uh, is, rather than some other state of affairs? That could be the first monoduxio, the leading by the hand. But now we're talking about the, the strategy of a Christian apologist or an evangelist, right? Um, but I think called for because of where we are culturally today. Well, it's time now for a question from one of our listeners. You can submit your question on the website askbishopbaron.com. We've got a cool little widget where you can record your question on your phone, mm. your tablet, your computer. So please send in your questions. We love getting them. Today we're hearing from Brandon, great name, in Atlanta, Georgia, and he's got a question about the fear of God. Here's his question. Hi, Bishop Barron. My name is Brandon from Atlanta, Georgia. My question is, how do you explain to someone the appropriateness of a fear of God? Or is it not appropriate because God is all loving and wants what is best for us? Thank you so much for all your wonderful work through the Word on Fire ministry. You've inspired me tremendously through the years, and I know you've done the same for countless others. God bless. Well, thank you for that. Yeah, good. It's a good uh, question because that phrase comes up out of the Bible. It's used in the great tradition, uh, the Timor Dei, Timor Domini, the fear of the Lord. Uh, it doesn't mean I'm terrified of God, right? So we shouldn't emotionalize it. It's something like a, a deep and exclusive reverence for God, it seems to me. Uh, what is of supreme value to me? And if I can take advantage of that word fear a little bit, what am I most afraid of losing? Or maybe nuance it a bit, who am I most afraid of offending or falling out of relationship with? You know, think of like your dearest friends or family members, that you have a fear of falling out of rapport with them. You have a fear of not responding adequately to them, you know? So we say the fear of the Lord beyond money, beyond my job, beyond my fame, beyond even my family, beyond even very good things, I'm above all afraid of losing my relationship with God because God's the highest good. I'm above all afraid 
of offending God. And again, don't emotionalize that as though God is, you know, hurt. Or he's losing something because we're not being good people. Uh, I, I'm afraid of not honoring God. So in, in that sense, the fear of the Lord is the supreme spiritual stance, you know. Um, so I would say don't emotionalize the language, but, but let the language bring you to a very serious place. I think it's meant to do that, that I, I have a fear of the Lord. I have supreme reverence for the Lord. I'm, I'm very much afraid of falling out of relationship with, with the Lord. I, I think that's what it means. Well, thanks for the question, Brandon, and thanks to all of you for watching this episode of the Word on Fire show. I mentioned this last week that for the last four years, we've been quietly working on an extraordinary new project. We're calling it the Word on Fire Bible. It's a series of, of presentations of the scriptures. The first volume, which contains the four gospels, is about to come out here in, in another few weeks. And I'm going to be a little shy about the details. I'm not going to tell you yet what's in it, what translation we're using, all the content and the artwork and everything inside of it. We'll spill those beans here in the, in the coming weeks. But suffice it to say, it's smart, it's beautiful, it's resplendent. We're describing it as a cathedral in print. That's the sense that the Bible conveys. If you want to learn more about it and be the first to know when it's available, first to know about the details about the Bible, visit the website wordonfire.org slash Bible. Wordonfire.org slash Bible. Just enter your email. We'll send you news as it continues to roll out over the next few weeks. So check out the Word on Fire Bible website's wordonfire.org slash Bible. Well, thanks so much for watching this episode, and we'll see you next week on the Word on Fire show. Thanks so much for watching. If you enjoyed this video, I encourage you to share it and be sure to subscribe to my YouTube channel.